I'm Matt Brown, one of the pastors here. It's always good to gather on a Sunday morning and uh, realign our minds and hearts to, to focus on uh, what is truly real for us as believers in light of what Jesus has done for us. And uh, this past week, just uh, really wrestling through this passage, as you'll see, it's an interesting one, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. You can make your way there if you have your Bibles. Um, but I want to start by talking about one of the greatest, greatest documents in recent history uh, that I would argue is the Declaration of Independence. Anyone familiar with that one? A little bit, at least you've heard of that before. Um, so it's almost 250 years has gone by since this document was penned. And one of the most memorable lines and quotable lines is this one, is that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit happiness. Well written. Good job, authors. I might know a couple by name, but not all of them. But here's the deal. is the same country that penned these words that we would say yes and amen to, this is great, has a history of hypocrisy. A history of hypocrisy in regards to our practice and endorsement even of slavery and to the propagating of segregation. Now that might not be as evident in our day as it was a handful of years ago, but there is a modern atrocity that goes against these principles, and that is that we do not protect the lives of those in the womb. We say all, all, all lives and, and everyone has these, these rights endowed by our Creator, and yet do we function as if that is true? Don't get me wrong, I believe we live in one of the greatest nations to ever exist in history, but we are not a nation without significant issues, both morally, socially, and spiritually. And I would argue this morning before you that no matter what documents, what structures, what values or laws govern any given society, there will not be a culture or a nation this side of eternity that is void of problems and various forms of oppression. That is the reality of human experience in this life. Now we must ask the question, why is that? Why is that true? It's because ultimately the human problem is not a government problem. It's not a law problem. It's a heart problem. God would tell us and his word would reveal to us that human beings have a corrupt heart. That's the issue. That's why we're never going to fully see liberation and freedom from oppression in this world. Because the issue is inside every single human being. Jeremiah 17, 9 puts it this way. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Good morning. Welcome to church. <laughs> we must understand that Christianity does not declare human beings to essentially be good in essence. 
That we are not, oh yeah, we're, we're overarchingly good, but we're just born with the ability to do bad things. No, Scripture teaches that we are corrupt to the core. That we are all born with a sickness, and that sickness is a slavery to sin. That's how we're born into this world. And as we continue to teach through our New Testament series in in the book of Ephesians, this mini-series we've titled Family Matters, we're going to see Paul turn his attention to the last institution that existed in many or most households of this day and age. So we've already been through this Family Matters series. We've looked at the covenant of marriage. We've looked at husbands and wives' roles. We've looked at children being obedient to their parents. We've seen fathers and how they're supposed to uh, treat and lead their children. And today, we're going to look to the last institution that, again, was a norm in the household of this day. The institution of slave and master. Now... That should cause you to swallow hard, step back, think, whoa, it's commonplace. Slavery was commonplace in the time and the place that Paul is writing. And we're going to dive into that. But here's an important note before we read our text is that marriage and family are institutes established by God. That's God's design. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Okay. Slavery is an institution established by God. By mankind. And an institution that simply reveals the corruption of our hearts that we just talked about. That's what slavery is. But it's going to be fascinating in our passage today because Paul is going to be more interested in instructing the hearts of these believers in their current circumstance than he is about having them try to change their circumstance. He's going to speak more to the heart than he is to anything else. And so how we're going to tackle this is we're going to walk through the text. We're going to see what Paul is teaching in the original context and how the original audience would have heard this. We're going to translate that for us today. And then we're going to ask the most important question is why? Why? What's the motive behind these instructions? So, with that, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul says this, Slaves or bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, so let's do a little historical background work here just to set us up and and to get our minds into what it was like in this time when this was written. So slavery in the first century was woven into the very fabric of society. It was 
society wouldn't have functioned at this time and how it was set up without slavery. We need to note that. And as I was doing a little bit of research, uh, Tom Schreiner's commentary was really helpful in just giving some of this background. So I'm just going to read a few points that he had in his commentary. He said this, people became slaves by being captured in wars, being kidnapped or born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardships might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Says some slaves served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, and could even own their own slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than his master. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and hence they had no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hand of their owners, and children born into slavery belonged to their masters rather than to the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them physically and sexually. And then in regards to manumission, this is what it says. Manumission is being freed from slavery. It says, this was available, but only mainly for urban slaves. And most slaves face the reality that they would never get out of their bondage. So let's ask ourselves the question, which I think is a fair question and a question that comes to the American mind when thinking about slavery. And that is this, is that why are the New Testament authors not more hard on the institution of slavery why do we not see paul here condemning slavery and saying don't do this this is what thomas tom schreiner said again he said the young churches would be fighting against the consensus of the greco-roman world and hence any such attempt at that time would be doomed to futility it wouldn't have gone anywhere and then, and then he said this, The New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their Creator. All right, so... Here, here's Paul's instruction. He, he's, he's giving specific instructions, again, within the household. And he's neither condoning nor condemning slavery. He's simply instructing believers where they find themselves in life. How do we live for Christ no matter where we find ourselves? No matter what authority we find ourselves under? How do we have a Christ-centered view and approach to living life? In our current circumstances. Again, Paul is addressing these slaves and masters within the context of a Christian household, which guess what that means? There were Christians in this time that were slave owners. Because he's speaking to the church, he's addressing both of them. Again, that should rub you wrong. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But let's dive into that text, look at the instruction. But I just needed, we need to understand the context here if we're going to try to understand this text. So back to Ephesians 6, 5. Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So here is an explicit instruction to those who are living in bondage. 
They can't get out of their situation. And Paul's saying, listen, here's how you can honor Christ. Obey your masters. Come under their authority. But then here's how he explains that. He gives these caveats. He says, with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. So this is, this is revolutionary for the time. You've got you to see this. With fear and trembling. It's like, have deep respect and, and your utmost loyalty devoted to your masters. That sounds intense. And then do it with a sincere heart. Meaning, do it with generosity towards them or singularity in your mind and heart in serving them. And so what I want to draw out for us from this is that this is a call from Paul. Whatever authority structure you find yourself under. Paul is saying, I want you to genuinely obey authority. And he's, I want you to do it with sincere respect. I want you to do what they ask of you wholeheartedly. Now, that would be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, would it not? But I would argue with you is that this is what made Christianity so radical in this day and age. For a slave to be instructed to obey in this sort of way would have been like, the world would have looked at that and said, are you crazy? Now, before we get too far into instructions to slaves, let's look at how Paul ends this in his instructions to masters as well. Ephesians 6, 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So all of a sudden, we see Paul level the playing field. Okay, slaves, here's what you're called to do, but masters, you've got to do the same thing. You're not off the hook. And guess what? You better rule in a way that that you're not threatening. You're not domineering over those in your care. That means you're not to be overbearing or unreasonable in what you would ask or require of those under you. And the argument is this, is why? Because the same authority that you have under King Jesus is the same authority that your slave has under you. We are all subject to the king of kings. No matter what our lot in life, Jesus levels the playing field. And as we saw in this text, it says there is no partiality with him, meaning that God doesn't have favorites. God is a respecter of no person. He says you are a human being made in the image of God. Equal in value across the board, no matter what your job or lack thereof or your title or your pedigree. It does not matter. All human beings are equal in value, and yet all human beings find themselves in some way, shape, or form under some kind of authority in this world, right? How many of you have a boss? You are under authority. How many of you are a boss? You are under authority. And you might say, well, to who? Well, to the government, right? There's business law and there's business taxes that you better pay or else what happens? Your company is going to get taken away from you. 
all of us are under some form of authority. And Paul is saying, whatever authority you are under, genuinely obey that authority. It's important for us to note that those in this passage, slaves specifically, were not able to just quit their job. Okay, they were, they were in bondage. And some of us might be able to say, well, I don't have to answer that authority. I quit. Yeah, that's fine. You're still going to have to go find another job. Right? But here's the point, is whatever authority you are under, you are called to submit. And to submit sincerely, with a sincere heart. You know, many people, even the disciples, thought that Jesus was going to be somewhat of a political revolutionary type guy. That he was going to rise up and and be the Messiah who would overthrow Rome's control over Israel. And that Jesus was going to establish another temporal kingdom. And that Israel was going to rise to power and prominence again. And and there was just all this this whispering of like, is is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to change all this? Is he going to throw over the Roman government? What are we going to do? How is this all going to play out? And the religious leaders approach Jesus and they ask him questions specifically in regards to the oppressive taxes that Rome had put upon them. And here's the interaction in Mark 12, 13 through 17. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesars the things that are Caesars, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Pay your taxes and don't complain about it. Respect the authority that's in place, honor it, submit to it, even if it's a system that's oppressive and unjust. The only time we as believers do not submit to authority is if our authority is asking us to sin and to violate God's law. That is the only time that we have freedom or the right, if you will, to not follow through with authority. And at the end of this, he says, submit to God the things that are God. So what he's saying is don't be so concerned about your present circumstances and present yourself and your heart unto God. See, all that you do is an act of worship unto him. As long as you are under authority, you are to do your job well. You are to pay your taxes without complaining. And you are to follow the laws of the land, which God says he established for our good. That's our role as Christians. Then we see this. Continue with genuine obedience is a part of it, but you couple that with a grateful attitude. Verse 6 and 7. Let's keep reading. Paul says, To do this not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
I liked how the, the, the New Living Translation uh, worded this. It says this, Try to please them at all times, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for men. So Paul's saying, don't just do your job well. Don't just work hard when the boss is around. Always do your work well and work hard because it's unto the Lord, not for man's pleasing, but to please God. Paul says that you might be slaves in this life, but in reality, you're a slave of Christ. And that anyone who is in Christ is a slave of Christ. And if you look through Paul's letters to the churches, you'll see in many of them, he actually opens up the letter with claiming this about himself. He'll say, Paul, a slave of Christ or a bondservant of Christ. He'll use the same language. He says, I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus. He owns me. I do what he tells me to do. So Paul is calling his fellow slaves of Christ to have grateful attitudes as they work hard unto the Lord. And this would have been something, again, uh, in that day that would have been revolutionary. Can you imagine you're, you're in a household and there's multiple slaves and, and you're one of them and the, the masters are away and you're like, oh, sweet, let's kick up our feet, right? Let's go have a little water cooler talk. The boss is away. We're going to play as it goes. And here Paul's saying, no, work just as hard when they're not around because your work isn't unto them. It's unto the Lord. You see, the attitude of Christians should be that that's, that's fundamentally set apart from the attitude of the world around us. And the only way you and I are going to have a good attitude in the things that we do is if our hearts are truly filled with gratitude for what God's done for us. Gratitude is the only thing that has the power to change our attitude. And our attitude about life, work, and authority will reveal a lot about us. And not only that, our attitude will make us look completely different than the world around us. When you're not complaining about your boss, or when you're not complaining about your employees not working hard, whatever it would be, Having an attitude of gratitude is, is fundamentally a distinction of the Christian life and work ethic that makes us set apart. And here's the thing that's so interesting about this passage is it says that when we do this, that we are actually doing the will of God. Did you catch that in that verse? It says, this is the will of God. And then in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18, this is what's given. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many of you have ever been like, God, what's your will? God, I need to know your will. He told you. How are you doing? (laughs) This is the will of God for you in Christ. Be joyful, rejoice always, pray, commune with God, and give thanks in what circumstances? All circumstances. Well, I'll give thanks once this changes. No. I will give thanks now. And this is God's will for you and for me. 
whether slave or free, stay-at-home mom, business owner or trash man. We can give gratitude and have a grateful attitude in all we do, no matter what our circumstances. And God says that's his will for his people. And that makes us smell a little bit different than the world around us, doesn't it? That makes us stick out a little bit around a culture where rebelling against authority is the norm and complaining about work is a daily habit of those around us. Servants of Christ are called to genuine obedience. They're called to grateful attitudes. And lastly, we're called to good motives. The end of uh, verse 7 there and the beginning of verse 8, it says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So God knows the good you do. God knows if you're working heartily as unto him. God knows if you're willfully coming under the authority that he has placed in your life. And what he's getting at here is is the motive of both slave and master. And he's saying, let your motivation be that that you are seeking the good of the other person. Your goal and your desire should be to see their good advance, their cause This is huge. This means both parties are responsible for the other and the welfare of one another. Again, remember, this is the context of a household and a Christian household. And so this mindset of instructing them to bring good to the entire household was something that they were all to embrace. And to me, it's reflective of Philippians 2, 3 through 5, that says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where I believe Paul is planting the seed that will lead to the eventual destruction of many institutions of slavery. Think about it like this. If my motive and your motive is for the good of the whole, and I'm taking your interests into consideration, at some point in time as a master, you'd say to yourself, huh, I wonder if I was a slave, if I'd want to be set free. Huh, probably, right? So this is, this is the seed of, 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 well, he's not, again, directly condemning slavery, but the thought here is to say, hey, you're equal. Consider the needs of others as more important than yourselves. And if you put yourself in their shoes, what do you want to happen to you? Well, I'd want to be free. Would you want to be free? And as many of you know, the history of abolition of slavery in different countries has been spearheaded by Christians who have led the way in destroying this institution. But for us today, I want to just take a minute and apply this idea of of motives, not to the text, but to our context and that of the local church. So again, Paul's talking about the household and the realities of the household. Well, here I want to talk about the household of God, the church. 
And when we adopt this mindset as brothers and sisters in Christ who, who belong to a church family, a local body of believers, when we have this mindset, we greatly honor Christ and we see his church strengthened. When everyone sitting in this room says, it's my responsibility to contribute to the good of the whole of this family. I need to use my gifts, my talents, my treasure, whatever I have for the good of the family. To make sure that we thrive as one, that we are whole and healthy. And that's what happens when we uh, adopt this motive in our heart. When we say, gosh, like I really do want the good of everyone in this room. And I want to contribute in any way I can to making sure we're all doing well and that we're all walking with the Lord. Now we're going to finally get to the why of this message. Because up to this point, you've heard rather an instructional message, right? Do this, be this way, think this way, get motivated by this. Genuinely obey, have a great attitude, have good motives. But if we explain the what without talking about the why, all of us will very quickly fall into moralistic living. And we'll start to see Christianity as this list of religious do's and don'ts. If we don't understand the why behind what's motivating us, we'll get into trouble. We'll become religious people. God wants us instead to live a life of relationship and communion with Him. God wants us to do these things because this is a path to life because of the life He has given unto us. The parallel passage to this one in Colossians is Colossians three twenty three through 24 And he says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are, serving, you are serving the Lord Christ. So what should motivate us? It's at the bottom of your notes there. Is that, that our reward is from God. God is the ultimate one we're seeking to please, and He is the ultimate one from our text that is going to reward us according to the good that we have done. And and in Colossians, it says our inheritance is in heaven. That's the end game for all who are in Christ. And I just found it so fascinating as I studied this passage and did a word search on slave in, uh, in, in its usage in the New Testament, that Jesus actually uses the word slave in defining greatness in God's kingdom. He uses the same word that Paul uses here. And in Mark 10, 42 through 44, this is what Jesus says. It says, calling them to him, the disciples, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So he's saying, this is how the world works. Bosses are going to boss you around. They're going to lord it over you. And then Jesus says this, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. 
Do you know how crazy that would have sounded to the disciples? They're like, what you, we're not slaves, right? You had fishermen, tax collectors, you have this mix of dudes, but they weren't slaves. And she's saying, you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Why don't you become a slave? What? Jesus takes everything that we know and understand about this world and he turns it upside down. And he says, you want to know what it's like to be a part of my kingdom? You want to know how to live for what matters? It sure isn't in following the, following the world around you. Well, why is that? Mark ten forty five. Jesus gives us the answer. When he says this, for even the son of man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the king of heaven. He is the eternal son of God, the creator of everything. And Jesus Christ put on flesh to dwell amongst his people who went wayward. And he did so to pay the price of our ransom so that you and I could be set free from the bondage of sin and death that we are born into as human beings. Is that crazy? Yes. That's insane. And that's why Jesus can say, you want to be great, serve. You want to be first, become a slave. Because look at what I, the king of heaven, did for you. Only when the gospel has blown your mind and captivated your heart, will you ever adopt this mentality of living. And anytime we turn and try to be selfish which we do every day, we should turn our eyes back to the cross. We should remind ourselves of the humility of Jesus Christ who came to set us free, to liberate our heart from our disease so that we could become alive in Him. Some of you may know the story of the Moravian missionaries who had obviously been so captivated by Jesus and they knew that they had been served and saved by him, that they headed for the Caribbean islands. And for us, we think, oh, cool, a vacation to the Caribbean, but not so for them. At that point in time, the islands were filled with unjust and horrific slavery. And these Moravians knew of this slavery, and they thought to themselves, these are souls made in the image of God that need the hope of Jesus Christ. And these missionaries were told they were willing to do whatever it took to reach these people. They even came to the point where they were strategizing and thinking, well, maybe we'll sell ourselves into slavery so we can reach them. They were willing to give up their temporary comforts and privileges in life so that others might know the eternal hope that they had found in Jesus Christ. The gospel should motivate us 
to do whatever God may call us to do. And I love what is recorded that these missionaries said as they're on the boat and they're heading out on their quest. These are the words. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I don't think that when I wake up in the morning. I want to. I believe it to be true. Even if it's not always reflected in my life. Friends, brothers, sisters, the lamb is worthy. He is worthy of anything he would call you to do. But for many of us, laying down our lives isn't going to another country to be a missionary. For many of us, that starts with simply submitting to the authorities God has already placed in our lives. You want to live radical? You want to be a radical Christian? Be faithful with where God has called you to be. Honor his word. Submit to authority with joy and with gratitude. Knowing that this is not your home. This is not the end of the story. This is as bad as it gets for us. Do you realize that? And we have hope in heaven. Let me close with this. Your lot in life is not a reflection of how much God loves you or doesn't love you. Let me say that again. Your lot in life is not a reflection of how much God loves you. I don't care what any preachers on TV might tell you. You are blessed if you are in Christ. And you have hope in heaven. Yes, God has the power to change your current circumstances. And I'm not saying don't pray for those things or seek those things. But that is not where we place our hope, friends. That's going to let us down. Your body's going to fail. You're going to lose people that matter to you. This life is filled with sorrow. But our joy is not here. It's there. And the love of God is most explicitly shown through the cross of Jesus Christ. Where every day we can look and say, oh yeah, he does love me. These circumstances don't change his love. He loves me. And I'm his servant.